Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. I have no Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. This is Eric Gurna, your host, and I'm here in New York City with Jakata Imani, Executive Director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me. So I feel like uh, right off the bat, I need to issue the the full disclaimer that uh, you and I have known each other for, I was thinking about it before you got here today, uh, almost 30 years. We are um, getting old. I don't, yeah, I don't mean to, to bust out our ages or anything, but we were, we were kids. <laughs> we were at Monterra Junior High, now Monterra Middle School, mm. in Oakland, California, woodshop class, um, when we met and have been best friends continuously ever since. It's funny because I've talked to people about when I've when I mentioned you and mentioned our friendship, people say, oh, yeah, I know this kid since, since junior high, too, or something like that. But then when you get to talking, you find out that they, you know, they weren't f- best friends that whole time. They right. were like friends, and then they drifted apart, found each other again because they lived in the same place or whatever. But right. we've really actually been best friends since we were 12. Um, and we are now no longer 12. <clears throat> Far from it. Far from it. <laughs> this is a monumental year, if anyone wants to do the math. This is a monumental, <laughs> monumental year for our birthdays. Um, so, And actually, that's our, our friendship... Um, is actually not the the reason that I asked you to come on Please Speak Freely. Um, That would have been fun to just sit around and talk about all the times. But um, in your work as uh, executive director of the Ella Baker Center, um, you know, you and I find that we exist in overlapping worlds. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in a larger sense, you know, in really are are doing much of the same work and from different perspectives. Yeah. And uh, this episode is sponsored by the Schools Out Washington Bridge Conference, which is happening October 8th and 9th in Seattle. And uh, you will be um, presenting a keynote alongside uh, Dr. Tony Smith, superintendent of Oakland Public Schools, Mm -hmm. Oakland Unified School District. Um, You all will be speaking on the second day together, kind of an innovative thing to have a a double keynote. Um, And the Bridge Conference is sponsoring this episode and and a couple others um, that are featuring um, keynote speakers at the Bridge Conference. And um, so I was really happy that you happened to be in New York doing the foundation circuit, um, and could have a chance to sit down. So thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I'm excited about both this and October. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, if we could start off by just talking a little bit about what your work is. I know many people have heard of Ella Baker, and many people have heard of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, but I'll bet you a lot of them don't know who she is, really, and mm-hmm. don't know what um, EBC does. So maybe we could start off, you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I'd love to. So, you know, the Ella Baker Center of Human Rights is named after an unsung hero of the civil rights movement who inspired and guided emerging leaders. And we try to keep our legacy alive by giving people the skills and the opportunities to work together to strengthen our communities so we all can thrive. We were based uh, based in Oakland, California now. We started uh, 15 years ago in, in San Francisco, founded by Van Jones, who a lot of your listeners will know about. Um, and we really came out of... Uh, standing up for people who most folks didn't want to talk about. You know, during the the, the height of the crack epidemic, we had uh, police misconduct and communities of color running rampant. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the traditional defenders of communities of color didn't really want to take on standing up for young people who are standing out on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, me personally, I've been in community meetings where black grandmothers who were old enough to have marched with Dr. King, who grew up in the segregated South, 
were begging police officers to arrest black and brown kids for standing in, in front of their own porches, mm-hmm. standing in front of their own houses, saying, can you arrest them for loitering outside their house? So there was something that had shifted in our communities. And the Yellow Baker Center stood up into that breach and said, you know, our young people deserve human rights. And so, you know, I came to the Yellow Baker Center 12 years ago mm. to be a part of that work. And, and since then, you know, I've grown into the executive director, um, worked on a number of our campaigns um, in, in, the, in, in the city of Oakland, in San Francisco, um, up in the state capitol, uh, throughout the state, um, really doing what we can to, to build the power of low-income communities and communities of color to stand up and fight for their own selves. And I, I know that you've involved young people in that, in that struggle, in that, in that work um, quite a bit. Can you talk a little bit about how young people have been involved? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I came to the Yellow Baker Center to be a youth organizer, and mm-hmm. it was really about, at the time, using hip-hop and um, sort of the party culture to give young people a voice and to help young people find their power to stand up for themselves and to stop the really the criminalization of their generation. Um, and now we've grown, you know, we've run campaigns with young people where campaigns, to, one of our biggest uh, campaign to stop the super jail, Alameda County, uh, you know, where, where I grew up, uh, was going to build this monstrous juvenile hall way out in the east end of the county. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ran a three-year campaign to stop them from doing that. And young people were really at the heart of that campaign, showing up the Board of Supervisor hearings and uh, doing raps and poems and chants. Uh, taking arrests at the city council, I mean, at the Board of Soups chambers, um, flying all the way to uh, San Diego to go to the uh, the State Board of Corrections hearings mm-hmm. and demand that the State Board of Corrections not give the county that much money to build this monstrosity, mm-hmm. but rather invest in education. Some people have been at the heart of so much of our work. And then uh, now we run a 10-month fellowship for high school age youth in the city of Oakland, teaching them how to develop and advocate for effective violence prevention policy. And over the last year, they've developed this incredible program um, that's based in uh, what people sometimes call forum theater or theater of the oppressed, which comes out of uh, this a guy, Augusta Boel, who used theater as a way to let people interact with um, their everyday life, to be able to objectify and see these things that happen in their day-to-day life, how they can actually step in and change it. And so the young people have designed these couple of skits that look at violent incidents the young people are often involved in. They run them through for groups of young people and then run it back and do it again and let the audience raise their hand and step in and become an actor and try out uh, violence interrupting strategies Mm -hmm. in a safe place. They also then collect that process as data and then process that data and share that back out with decision makers about what young people are finding and what they're finding in our communities. I Um, didn't didn't mean to interrupt you. I I didn't know that that you were using Boal's work right now. Um, you know, I, th- I think you know that that Elia, my wife, has been deeply involved in that work here through the Brecht Forum mm-hmm, here in New York City mm-hmm. and the Theater of the Oppressed Laboratory. And and I was lucky enough to do uh, a three day workshop with Boal before he passed on a couple of wow. years ago. Um, so that that work is super super important to me, and I didn't realize that that you were that you were facilitating that. Yeah, yeah well, cool. oh, we have this great guy on staff. I wish I could take credit. We have this great yeah. guy on staff, uh, Josh yeah. Bloom, who we hired, who mm-hmm. has just like really figured out how to like really infuse art and culture in a very thoughtful way mm-hmm. into this process, you know, um, where we can share what we know and then allow young people to take that to the next level. Right. So, um, yeah. And I think that's the, you know, we came up with this idea of this program, heal the streets, mm-hmm. um, from the frame of that. Most people see young people as the problem. Right. And we said, well, 
that can't be possibly true given that violence has been around since before they were born. Um, they couldn't be the people who invented violence. But maybe since it's been around since before, they, fresh eyes can help us figure out what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, what we knew for sure is we wanted to put, position young people to be a part of the solution. Um, and Josh and his brilliance sort of figured out a couple different things and then tapped into you know, this incredible pedagogy, this incredible teaching method uh, that Augusta Boyle developed. And um, and now I think we're set on something that we're going to keep keep doing and keep sharing with. Yeah, it's amazing work. People. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really transformative. It's it's interesting to me because so many of the organizations um, and youth programs that I've worked with are focused on primarily on how do we support and serve youth, mm-hmm. and then they may do theater stuff, they may do arts, they may do um, service learning, but those are means to the end of. Um, increasing outcomes for the youth that they work with. Yeah. And I feel like I could be wrong and I don't have like the, I haven't done the research, but my, (laughs) my sort of intuition about it is that organizations like yours that start from, um, a goal for the larger culture, the larger society, and then give young people a chance to get involved with that, mm-hmm. get deeper engagement. Cause it's not about providing services to youth. It's about, it's really about giving them an opportunity to serve. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. No, completely. I mean, I think it's, it is, you know, I grew up as one of those kids who came from sort of an at risk in quotes background, right? right? Like, um, my family used drugs. My mom was on welfare. I, Grew up from back and forth in a single parent household, um, and what made a difference for me, one of the, is that I had a youth program that wasn't just about providing me services, but mm-hmm. that was about investing in me as a leader and seeing mm-hmm. me and seeing what my opportunity was to give back and contribute to my community, which then started from a place of strength and didn't start from a place of weakness, a deficient, right? Right. Um, and I think that is fundamentally transformative. And as a young person, one of the things I, I did when I first started getting into doing sort of peer education and training was I started to catalog what what were the things that were transformative for young people and transformative for people broadly. And one of those things is um, having changed something, having some success in changing small things yeah. to changing big things and then being a part of a group that you believe can affect change, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think... Uh, being in youth groups that believe that are uh, not just about youth leadership, but about, I mean, not just about youth development, but are about youth leadership development. I think it's that extra click mm-hmm. where you give people a role and a responsibility and then people live into it. Like basically people live up to our expectations in a lot of ways. Right. And so if what you expect is greatness and what you, that's what you get. Um, and I think the inverse is true is when we expect people to do poorly and mm-hmm. that's what we hold out for them. That's what they do. They meet those expectations. Um, and I think in a crazy example is the last president. He was expected to be great <laughs> from early on. In his, and it's like no, no evidence that he should be great. And then there he is president, right? Because he just had this sort of carpet rolled out in front of him. Who are we and talking about right now? Jo- George W. Oh, okay. The last president. Yeah, the last yeah. president, right? <laughs> Who? And so I think that... He was expected to be great in terms of the family he was born into? The family he was born into, the culture around him. Right. Where, you know... So uh, even though he was intellectually deficient, he still was able to rise up and, and oh, be successful? Is that what you mean? Achieve incredible success. Right. Not, not necessarily for the country or the world, right. but sort of as a personal endeavor. Right, accomplishment. Um, you would want for any of, I would want for any of my children to, to be as successful as he has been. 
<laughs> right. I get, I get <laughs> and, what you're saying. And they're putting aside the, the the quality of that success. Yeah. Uh, putting aside, setting aside yeah. momentarily yeah. the quality mm-hmm. of success. Or you know, so and I think you know, uh, uh, I think Nelson Mandela is another example mm-hmm. that people don't quite understand that Nelson Mandela was born into in South Africa a royal family, mm-hmm. a family that was actually. Uh, a family that was expected to do great things. And so even though Nelson Mandela went through horrible trials and tribulations, um, he, when you hear him read his books, talk with him, what you learn is that early on he was instilled this thing, this idea that he could do great things. Mm. And so then he was on a process to fulfill that success, right? I mean, he is a great person, and so, you know, not necessarily typical, um, but also not atypical, uh, many of us have have a, a deep greatness in us. It's just not what's called forward. Mm-hmm. And so, youth leadership development calls every young person into their greatness and says you have something to contribute. Um, and it's not up to you to judge how great or how small it is. You just get get to contributing. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like those uh, the the programs that involve young people from the Ella Baker Center are they reaching young people who um, who might otherwise not have an opportunity like i'm i'm th- mm-hmm. the reason i'm asking mm-hmm. i'm mm-hmm. asking in a clumsy way but like a lot I, a lot of programs reach the easiest to engage because they're like hey and who wants to help out with this service project and then yeah. the, you know great for for those young people who get to do that great um they probably would have been all right anyway but they get this opportunity and that's that's awesome but a lot of the young people who really um maybe need some support needs some connection won't necessarily raise their hand that's right so like who does ebc mm-hmm, mm-hmm, engage mm-hmm. you know i think it's uh, um i'll be 100 percent honest with you i, I think I hear the question that you're asking is do we cream <laughs> kind of but <laughs> you know, I a mean, little bit uh, not 100 percent. you know yeah. but it's, it's not it's not the it's not the it's not the it's not the richest cream um but but and i think the answer simple answer is no but the more complicated answer is it it is sort of um Young people from a, a few different backgrounds mm-hmm. um, who are involved because we find that another one of those important uh, things about a transformative situation or experience is that there's experience of crossing boundaries and borders, right? That you have to go and see something different. Yeah. So you actually need people who are in the program who come from different parts of the city who have slightly different backgrounds and experiences to complicate it. Cause it's like, you know, if we all see it the same way, cause we all have come through the same set of experiences, mm-hmm. then our view is limited. Mm-hmm. It's in that we have people in the group who see it very differently and who, you know, who also concerned about violence and the impact of violence in our community, but who haven't lost a bunch of people to violence. They've just more experienced it from afar. Right. Right. Um, or people who've experienced violence differently, they've more experienced violence in the home or mm-hmm. dating violence, or um, they come from a country that is war-torn and where they experience violence across the country, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then you have those young people's voices in the room, you actually get a richer and deeper and distinct conversation than if you just went and asked, you know, picked up a busload of kids from one block in one, in one neighborhood in East Oakland. Right. And so we end up with a broader cross-section um, but on purpose, right? Because it's it's that that helps us get where we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that we do is that we have <laughs> we have sort of alternates who um, 
come along for part of the way because we know that there's going to be some attrition. There's mm-hmm. young people who really want to do this and who then find that they're failing out and so they got to give something up and this is the thing. Mm-hmm. There's young people who really want to do this and then, you know, we had this young uh, uh, woman come to one of our meetings the other day, um, showed up and she said, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry I'm late. Um, I was in the car with my cousin and some guys ran by and then ran back by and they started shooting. Mm. outside the car mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my cousin had to like do these evasive maneuvers in the car and then my little cousin she had never been around any shooting like that so she was totally freaked out and so we had took her home and sat with her for a little bit and you know and so then i was really rushing but sorry i was late right and we we're like oh my god yeah. you just saw somebody get shot and yeah. then had to console your cousin who'd never seen anybody get shot and still came and then still showed up and yeah. you're apologizing for being late right is that what Right. And so, um, yeah. And then another, you know, there was this young man who w- went to Skyline in the high school you graduated from mm-hmm. who, who uh, was just shot the other day by the OPD. Mm. Turns out one of his cousins is in our program and we wanted to do some work around at the L. Baker Center. Um, and we want, reached out to his cousin who's in the program and reached out to his, 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 his family. And the cousin was like, you know, I'm not ready. Yeah, um, we wanted to give her space to not be ready, right? Um, and and really deal with that grief in our own way. But so I think we want we we have young people who are in the program who that's their daily experience, and then we have young people in the program who are doing relatively well in school, who have you know supported their family in a lot of ways, and who really still understand that this is a problem in our city that they can be confronted with and faced with at any moment, mm-hmm. and just because. That hasn't been their lived experience yet in a day-in, day-out way doesn't mean that it doesn't touch them. And so they yeah. want to be a part of the solution, and they yeah. can be in that way. One thing that I was struck with about the story you just told about the young woman who, who came with you know, the, the quote-unquote excuse for being late. It's mm-hmm. like the, the level of, there's a level of normalcy oh. to, to even gun violence that is like, okay, this was crazy. I'm sure, I'm sure to her it was, like, it was a crazy experience, but not crazy enough for her to not come to work. Um, it was like okay, you know, we and we move on. That's right. Um, whereas, the, you know, I certainly know young people who that would be. Uh, I mean, th- at least that day's activities are suspended clearly as a result of that <laughs> incident. You know. Yep. Um, and in 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 Oakland and in in lots of cities, it's not just Oakland. Um, there's a level of normalcy to that kind of that kind of situation. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, it, it's um, and it's interesting because I think both as a young person, I recall that there were things that I never told my parents about. Yeah. Things that I was engaged in or saw um, that never came up. Like we, you know, uh, as you know, I, I was, you know, I was a skater. I mm-hmm. rode skateboards in high school and after and um, had a whole little crew. Of That's quite. Yeah. Mostly young dudes of color who mm-hmm. rode skateboards and hung out, I hung out with. And we had beef with this other crew that went on for a while where Mm -hmm. it was like, you know, we would see them and it was problems. And I never, you know, I'm like 16 years old and it never came up to my parents. And to this day, never had a conversation with my mom about like, I had, you know, these dudes who we were funking. Like if we saw them, it was a problem. And if they saw us, it was a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I went to school with them and they were like breaking into my friend's lockers and all this. And it never came up to my family that I was dealing with all this. Right. You know? Uh, my oldest girl, your your goddaughter, Jael, was one of her fi- friends was in a fight outside of the school where another kid cut her. Mm. And 
I texted with Jael that day, and it never came up. Wow. Until I got a call from the school later saying, you know, Jael was part of a group of kids that were in a fight, and we're still doing an investigation. We'd like you to keep her home tomorrow. And I'm been texting with her and she's like oh, i'm going to this friend's house right and it's like there was a fight at school where there was a bat pepper spray someone got cut who you knew and how never it never came up that this was something that she should say yeah because it was just like these things happen yeah yeah this is sort of normal right like, i didn't get cut right. you know it was her right. thing was like well i didn't get cut right and nobody i was it was fine yeah you know yeah um and so it is normal but it doesn't have to be normalized. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about and thought a lot about and worked a lot about in our, in our, in our work is, you know, when the tragedy happened at Columbine, mm-hmm. um, that community didn't, didn't pretend like it didn't happen and didn't just move on. Right. People got time off work. They brought counselors and therapists to the school. They, you know, there was a ton of resources pumped into that community to deal with the, the loss and the pain and the suffering and the, and to help that community make meaning of that tragedy mm-hmm. um, that a lot of working class and poor communities of color don't get that sort of um, that level of, of, of support and engagement right. to heal. Right. Right. Um, at all. Yeah. And that's, and that's a, and that's, an, and that's an inequity because, because, yeah. because those communities are more likely to suffer post-traumatic stress and re-injury of that stress yeah. and reanimation of that stress, right? Um, but then have no means of getting any sort of support to deal with that yeah. or process it. That's, yeah, it's really interesting because um, we're sitting here in, in the Development Without Limits office and uh, happen to have sitting next to me this, this box um, of this program, Connecting for Success, which mm-hmm. I'm showing you right here, um, Making Connections per- Personal, Inspiring Social Action. And this was a curriculum that we helped uh, LA's best in Los Angeles make and it's about reducing a tolerance for violence mm-hmm. and um, you know helping students to improve their communities through positive social action and the initial um, idea for that was really focused on reducing a tolerance for violence and mm-hmm. especially around um, he- helping shift the notions around when do we speak up mm-hmm. when do we mm-hmm. Not so much when do we like tell on someone, but when do we say this is not okay or this is not okay that this is happening in my house, this is not okay that this is happening in my school, my block, my city, whatever it is. Um, and, and one of the things that came up in that was something that was really hard for us to deal with and I don't feel like we really tackled it in the mm-hmm. material because it mm-hmm. was like too touchy. Mm-hmm. But it's something that I want to um, mention now and see what you think about because um, obviously I agree around the inequities of the response to tragedy, without a doubt. I mean, there's been a lot recently, this case here in New York, um, around a a child who was missing and and presumed murdered many, Mm. many years ago, like 20-something years ago, and there's there's all this attention recently because someone confessed. That's right. And there's been a lot of people on, especially on social media, around, you know, mentioning other uh, children who have been missing, mm. who are children of color, whose names we don't know, whose names mm-hmm. who are not in the news, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's certainly huge inequities that exist around the responses and the media coverage and the opportunities and the resources. But there's also sometimes cultural barriers that exist mm. within communities, mm. within, um, I want to say communities of color is too general. Yeah. Um, but so to be more specific and not try to be coded mm-hmm. about it, um, I'll just ask the question: Like, do you feel like that there's a reluctance among um, among African American communities, specifically, or among other communities of color, a reluctance to um, seek counseling, to mm-hmm. report 
uh, violence and abuse to to proactively try to get those resources mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or is it is it just a, an inequity of of supports and resources like from yeah. the external institutions yeah. i mean i think um i mean it's interesting right because I, I think this is a as people began began to sort of look at this trauma informed work like this sort of like looking at what are the what is the impact of children in particular ex- having traumatic experiences and yeah. ha- what are the sort of resiliency factors or the healing factors um this sort of, this stuff comes up mm-hmm. and i think um i think there's no simple answers no. i think that that you know the history of how the public sector i.e. the government engages in the African American community has not been to protect and serve, hasn't been of servants for the greater good, right? And so if you look at all of the sort of the basic public services that are, they're not, the experience by and large of black people isn't one of having their needs met. Right. It's having, it's one of, um, whether it's child protective services, um, it's one of breaking apart and wedging apart families and communities. It's one of demonizing and criminalizing parents or caregivers. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not one of creating health, hope, and healing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's adding damage to damage and trauma to trauma. And so when you have, when you're confronted with a system that has been so often, uh, a source of pain, it's hard to see that as a source of healing and help and promise. Right. right? Um, and so, you know, I think about people I knew who grew up in small towns and they would, or just even the Andy Griffin show, right? It was like the drunk guy who's in jail cooling off because he's drunk and then the police take him home. Well, feed him breakfast, give him some coffee. Right. Hang out and play checkers and then take him home. And then take him home, right? right? As opposed to just whipping you. Mm-hmm. Something you know, as opposed to the Abner Wima experience, as we're here in New York, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 Rodney King experience from L.A., right? That is more the experience that you know I think, uh, by and large, black people, it's you know, and Latinos have of um, the government and of government support is not that it's like um, it's not there to help, right? And so, um. Yeah, I mean, so the reluctance to to reach out for support or resources, if there is one, mm-hmm. if there is a reluctance, it it comes from that experience, the lived experience of that. Yeah. that, that there, it hasn't been a supportive. It's not those services haven't been there to support. Right. That if you look at the dollar for dollar spending in low income communities, communities of color, it is things that don't end up strengthening communities. Right. Like right. we could just take the city budget in those areas and dump it out into poor neighborhoods yeah. and get better outcomes. Like right. we just hand the money out right, and get right, better right. outcomes <laughs> than we do through the way that we program the money currently. Mm-hmm. Right. And that relates quite closely to, to something else that I wanted to, to talk about, which was um, sort of the initial notion of, of why uh, schools at Washington invited um, Tony Smith, the superintendent of Oakland public schools and, and you, to deliver this um, keynote at the conference together. Mm-hmm. And that is that um, 
so often we hear about young people being quote unquote lost. And oftentimes you you hear lost to the system or lost to the streets. Yeah. Um, I just, I was just on Twitter the other day and there was, there was something on there about, um, the dropout rate and how many thousands of kids drop out every year and they're right. lost. We lose them to, to the, to drop out. And, mm-hmm. and I always have this like funny image in my head, like of, of people floating off into space or something like they're not lost. Right. Mm-mm. Like, Mm-mm. um, we do lose young people to, to violence and, and, and illness and, and, and other things, but that, you know, when we lose them and they, they actually pass away or are fatally ill, that's one thing. That's right. But to talk about young people, um, you know, 16, 15, 14, who uh, are in the juvenile justice system as lost seems to me to be just in- incredibly um, cynical and also dramatic, mm, you know, mm. because those people still exist. They still have lives um, and they're st- they still have hope and they still have futures. Yeah. Uh, and so and I know a lot of your work has been advocating for victims of police brutality and advocating for um Con- conditions and treatment within the juvenile justice system in California. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of wh- what's the question that I'm, that I'm leading towards. I guess I'm, I'm wondering, um, what do you think is important to think about when we think about the, you may know the numbers, I don't, the mm. thousands of young people mm-hmm. who are not in the public school system, they're in the juvenile justice system. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think... It's important to understand that the, the juvenile justice system was a reform, right? The, the, the juvenile justice system comes out of reform that young people used to be held in adult prisons and adult jails. Mm-hmm. And some great, well-meaning people said, hey, you know what? This seems like a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And if we, we're getting bad outcomes for these young people by locking them in with adults. So we should actually separate out young people. Um, you know, even the early, early, early brain science of 100 years ago said... Uh, we think young people are different than adults. Like, it just turns out, you know, they're kind of still in formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that notion is sort of mainly sort of held up uh, with some major differences, particularly for black and brown youth, particularly African-American youth. If you look at young people who are on death row um, for crimes committed before the age of 18, they're predominantly African-American mm-hmm. children. Um but so, but by and large, we sort of have this notion that young people are distinct from adults, and so we should the the system that deals with and uh, violations of the law by young people should be distinct from the institution that deals with violations of the law from adults. Um, but over time, the distinction of those systems have sort of eroded. That um, as as the criminal system has become much less about corrective, um, but much more based in punishment. Um, so is the juvenile system. The juvenile system has become much more about retribution and punishment than it has become about rehabilitation and sort of and, and habilitation, right? That that we can habilitate young people, that we can grow young people into productive members of society. What does habilitate? I know rehabilitate means. So rehabilitate is yeah. the sort of rehab, right? Yeah. Like you bring it back. Right. Habilitate is to just bring it up, to grow from, it. From, okay. To from grow the start. it from the start, yeah. right? Okay. And so the idea is that you're still growing up people from the start. And so yeah. if there's something that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it's not working right, that you can there's still opportunity to make it work right and to get it to grow right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the you know we have literally tens of thousands of young people um, who are not who are not with their families throughout this country. Um, we have, in fact, in this country, the biggest the biggest juvenile justice system in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
again, the impetus for it is that young people are, are different than adults, and so we should treat them differently. Young people have, we have the opportunity to educate them and invest in them and to turn their lives around at a more successful rate, at a higher rate than we do adults. And so that's the impetus. But then the reality is that we haven't actually spent a bunch of time and energy thinking through um, how does one do that and what is the best way to do that. And so what we end up with is still a more punitive system um, that is more a system that's more based in sort of doing, doing as I say and not as I do. Mm-hmm. Right, which is exactly the opposite of what young people who are in conflict with the law need. Right, um, that they that, that that what they actually what it turns out what works best for them is to be in a situation where the rules of the game are very clear and everybody at the table plays by the rules of the same game. Mm-hmm. That there's not this sort of difference for guards that I can't hit people, but guards can hit people. Mm-hmm. That uh, I can't be disrespectful, but the adults can be disrespectful. There has to be one rule, um, and then it works really well, and people start to get it. That in fact. The best situations are of, 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 of dealing with turning young people's lives around is a peer-coached model. Mm-hmm. If young people start to take responsibility for themselves and each other um, and start to hold the, the rules of the game with each other right. um, and help each other advance and, and grow, because that's what sort of happens naturally, right? Um, and that, uh, but what we have is we have these systems that young people are, are, are in, whether, and it's, and it's sadly, it's, it's similar across the systems. The juvenile justice system is very similar to the child welfare system. Mm-hmm. When young people end up in the foster care or adoption systems, it's very similar. They, they, there isn't this sort of love and care for young people who are in the care of these systems. There is this sort of like, rules and punishment and consequences for the young people in these systems. Right. And so um, we have to transform that. And a lot of our work has been about transforming that. And I think that there's an opportunity increasingly um, for communities to hold those systems accountable as we would those parents. Right. If, if you were with your child and you were doing what these systems do to your neglecting children in the same way the systems neglect children, well, the system would take them away. That's right, how they got right, them oftentimes, right, right? right? But then they turn around and they do very similar damaging Yeah, that's things. amazing, actually. I never really thought about it like that. I mean, what I was thinking was that, you know, knowing the, the generally knowing the research around, you know, for, for young people who are in foster care, the chances that they're going to wind up in the justice system are much, Huge. much higher than if they're not in foster care. And seeing that sort of continuum, I hadn't thought about the way you just thought about that, the way you just talked about it, that... If, if, if I were to treat my own children the way that they're treated in some juvenile justice institutions, my children would be taken away from me and put in those institutions. That's correct. Or not put in those institutions, put in the child welfare institutions, which increases their likelihood of ending up in the justice system so much more. Yeah. And, and those systems are not very dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Like the expectations, um, the, the basic sort of disrespect and lack of investment and value of young people. Yeah. Map. Yeah. Right? Um, that seeing young people and the families they come from as the problem map. Right. Right? If you talk right. to young people who've spent time in the foster care or the, welfare, or the child welfare system, people who've spent child time in the juvenile justice system, what they hear from the systems about themselves and mm-hmm. about their families of origin leave leave no room but to sort of say you are damned and doomed Mm -hmm. and so that's why you're here and that's why you're going to be here 
right? Mm-hmm. It's not a, a very hopeful narrative. And if, again, we go back to where we started, which is people live into our expectations, if the person that ends up raising you is a government institution whose who's expectation of you is you come from a damaged family and are damaged goods, then where do you go and what expectation do you live up to, right? Um, so what I, what I find is a common feature of young people from both of those systems who do well ultimately is they do well because despite the system to actually say mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you destroy me or destroy my life right. I'm going to be the exception to the rule right. I'm going to be the person who makes it out I'm going right. to be the person who turns my life around right. not often because the system does something magical or exceptional or provides some sort of support yeah. um, but often because they right and then the thing is, is we know what that stuff is. It's not rocket science. I mean, you can. We have families that. I mean, we have families that function perfectly well within our society, and we know what the elements of a well-functioning or or young people who receive the sort of protective factors and investment that let them do well. Mm-hmm. They have caring adults. They have a positive peer circle. They have um, some opportunities to express themselves. They have. Uh, a, some clear sort of vision around purpose or belonging and place. Um, all these things aren't rocking science. You can just do that. Right. But, okay, so we we do know that, and I think it's it's almost to the point of being somewhat common knowledge if you, you know, even if you're not in the field in terms of the support factors that need to exist for a young person to, to grow up, you know, mentally and physically healthy. But have are there examples of the juvenile justice system incorporating that like in in your work have you mm-hmm. created or have you found or partnered with can you talk about any situations where there is hope that that system or those systems yeah. can actually embody some of those values or, or 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 attributes that you just described yeah yeah um so you know please f- f- tell f- me f- something good <laughs> i mean it's, yeah because it, you know i'm talking about the kid the, the, the kids are lost. with people say kids are lost yeah but when we talk about these systems then, you know, I'm thinking, man, that does feel like they're lost, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's the hope. I mean, I think a couple of things. One is that young people find it in each other and decide to do it. So, you know, there's these examples of young people who make a pack. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get our stuff together. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, you know, and we're, gonna, we're never coming back here. And those are the stories that are told often. Yeah. Um, but even sometimes when young people are trotted out by these systems as the success stories, yeah. if you get a chance to talk to those young people about what it was, it wasn't the system, it was them. Mm. You know, or it was one person in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think when you look at the systemic level, there's uh, there are places like Missouri. Missouri's Division of Juvenile Justice, um, some people often refer to as the Missouri model, mm-hmm. has very promising and, and very hopeful um, signs, right? So they put young people who are engaged in, um, you know, things that, that you, you and I would think, would, okay, they need a timeout. Like, they actually need some, some space and some separation. Right. And some, they got some stuff to deal with. Right. They put those young people in very home-like conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't put them in these sort of single or double cells or even these giant um, dorms with any young people. They have them wear clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, these young people live in very dorm, uh, college dorm-like settings where it's like mm-hmm. a couple people to a room. So they have a system that's much like where you went away to college. Like it's just much looks very similar. Like there's a few people in in a in a in a, in a dorm room or in a little pod who live together. There's <laughs> I didn't go to college in a pod. Well, in, in the dorm room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> so so uh, uh, 
they have like some some staff who uh, who have an ongoing deep relationship with those young people where they're helping to mentor and guide them. Mm-hmm. Those young people form bonds and relationships with each other where they help to hold each other accountable, help to work with each other on their stuff. These young people have and are engaging in um, relationship and work with their with their families of origin. Mm-hmm. So you know, once a week, a couple times a week, their family comes up and they're enga- and they're doing that sort of whole family therapy stuff where you're actually saying, look. This kid's a part of a system. You can't fix that. You can't fix that kid outside of that system, right? Right. You got to. So you got to bring the whole family in and have that conversation. Um, and then I think there are places like um, Oakland and Alameda County, um, and even some of the, I think some of the, I think some of the stuff here in New York State, mm-hmm. where people are beginning to look at that. You know, if it takes a village to raise a child, what does it take to raise a village? Like we actually have to have a whole bigger conversation about the communities these young people come from, right? Um, because the thing that's been so interesting to me about it is that if you have uh, a, a, a neighborhood, a community, a city that spits out a predictable number of young people who commit a predictable set of offenses mm-hmm. year after year after year, month after, you know, decade after decade after decade, and you just keep taking plucking off the individual people, something's wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, this, this, this metaphor I've heard recently about this, this village on a river sees babies bobbing up and down in the river and they of course form a team that goes out there and starts bringing babies to shore and they're doing this day and night for a week and finally somebody says well hold on i'm gonna go up river and see find out who's throwing babies in right yeah somehow that never happens we never figure out well could it be just this young person what has a problem when we've had Young person after young person after young person comes through the system who is uh, prone to violence, who is engaged in the street and not in school, who is selling drugs, who is engaged in prostitution, who is running away from home and they can't get them to go, who is, who is, who is, and it keeps happening time and time again. How is it we never go back and actually fix this, the, the conditions that are leading young people down these paths? We just fix the individual young people and hold them individually accountable which is an important step, but insufficient to actually stemming the flow of young people into these systems. And so that's the work that I think some places are beginning to do when they're thinking about you know, what, 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 what Tony is trying to do, what this full-service community schools, um, what others are trying to do in this sort of a, a, a complete sort of wraparound approach or a community development approach that starts with young people at the center, but then engages an entire broader community building strategy and approach that is really about resourcing and lifting up the entire community. Mm-hmm. Um, Youth Uprising in East Oakland is doing something similar. Um, I mean, the Harlem Children's Zone, I think, is, is an interesting example of that. Not necessarily replicatable, but an interesting example of how do you invest in young people as a way to pull up the entire community? And how do you pull up the entire community such you can invest in young people? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's interesting because, you know, that I'm, re- I'm very familiar with, like community schools and community school partnerships and and what you were just describing but oftentimes the juvenile justice system is left out it's like it's like that's what happened it's like that's falling off the end of the earth yeah you know and what you're describing in the missouri model which i'd like to learn more about um right away when you're describing it i could hear the critics in my mind because it's it's similar to a european model of Mm. of um jail and prison for adults as well that i've Mm. you know read some about that i'm not sure where northern europe is usually where all the better social <laughs> supports and systems tend to be, but like where the, the sort of dorm like setting where people are coming out um, with some kind of engagement with, you know, less likely to come back and That's et cetera. Right. Um, and of course the critics will say you're, you're rewarding and coddling 
criminal behavior, um, at, you know, you're, you're spending money on taking care of people who have been destructive to yeah. their communities. Yeah, yeah. And there's two things that, about that that I think we have to take head on. One is we have to stand on that, no, we're reducing the likelihood there'll be more victims. Mm-hmm. That, it, that, that has to be our first priority. And if it isn't our first priority, I'm not sure what we're doing. Mm-hmm. The second is, and this is one of the things where I think it's always so interesting, that it's all, often these sort of like Nordic countries that take on that most sort of what we would consider almost progressive criminal right. justice. Right. And it's because they actually all are all cousins. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's a fairly small population, and mm-hmm. they all are related. And so it's, it's not somebody else's kid. Mm. It's not somebody else's, you know, it's actually that that's their people. Mm-hmm. And, and so they actually have that as an awareness. And so this isn't this like you're rewarding people who. Right. It's like, no, we're talking about my brother. Mm. And so I desperately want to hold my brother accountable for his behavior. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I know that he, I need to reintegrate him. That mm-hmm. it isn't just like. He's now banished forever and flies off into the into the stratosphere. No, he's going to get out at some point, and now we have to deal with him. And either we deal with him in a stronger, better, more developed, more integrated, more productive way, mm-hmm. or he's spiraling back in, and in the meantime, damaging our family and sucking resources and and hope and health from our family. Yeah. Right. And if and it's because and this is the place that's where it really is racialized. Because we're talking about other people's kids who come from families that weren't working right, no way. Ain't our folks know how. And, you know, they're throwaway. But once we say, no, these are our kids, they're not throwaway. And and we own them. And they're part of our community. And they're part of our family. You come up with different strategies. So, you know, we talked about George W. earlier. We'll talk about George W. again. (laughs) He went to Yale. Mm -hmm. He had all kind of problems. Uh, mm-hmm. Drinking problems, which he talks about himself, mm-hmm. Rupert drug problem. Mm-hmm. Nobody throws him away and gives up on him. Right, right. He gets to come back and rehabilitate himself. Mm-hmm. He gets to go on to become president of the United States mm-hmm. because nobody gave up on him because they didn't say no, you're trash and you're you've hurt whatever. They said we understand what you you know, and they held him accountable. For our folks, for people of color, black and Latino people in particular, that's not what society does. That when you look at even the sentencing. The sentencing of a black person who commits the same crime in the same city as a white person who commits the same crime is longer. Right. Longer. Same crime, same circumstances. Throw the book at them. We understand. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even matter if the judge is black or white. This is a mm-hmm. broad social bias about who deserves redemption and who deserves punishment. And until we can get past that. We're setting ourselves up. And now the problem, the bigger problem is a long time ago, 25, 30, 40 years ago, we were just setting ourselves up to, to harm black people. But given an era of tough choices where we actually have to decide if we're going to close a school, end adult daycare, provide uh, health care for our elders, um, have clean air and drinking water, like an era of tough choices, we, can, we have to choose between continually to disproportionately and unjustly punish black people or invest in a future for all of us. Those are the choices right now because there's no more money, right? But we spend disproportionately and painful amounts of money incarcerating people to, for bad outcomes in a disproportionate way, right? And mm-hmm. we can actually have a breakthrough there and free up a ton of resources, transform people's lives and transform our state and local budgets and actually have money now to invest in some of the things we all want, right? 
And I think that's what the opportunity is. Jay, I want to I want to really thank you for taking the time to to do this. It's been a great conversation, um, a new perspective um, on Please Speak Freely for sure um, on on these kinds of issues. And um, I'm super proud of you and the work that you're doing. And uh, you know, I hope that we can keep finding ways to to overlap and almost kind of sort of work together too. Oh yeah, no, thank you. And 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 back at you. I mean, this is actually incredible. I mean, what you've been doing for the last ten almost 15 years now, um, is absolutely incredible. And I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. And let's keep figuring out ways we can collaborate and conspire to make, make things better. All right, great. I'm going to press stop on the recorder and we can keep telling each other how great we are. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.